Today's podcast is presented by Podco. Podco is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast and I'm so excited that I discovered it. As an indie podcaster, it allows me to monetize my podcast with a flat rate and so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podco. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's Pod go.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o and be sure to add our podcast immigrantly in the how did you hear about podco section of the application you know at one point um, my mother said she wouldn't have been able to bring me to the united states if i was a boy and i just didn't understand that Obviously, I still love my mother, but I haven't seen her for eight or nine years. And I don't know how to bridge that gap because I don't know if I trust her to be in my life. You know, when you spend about a decade on a book, after a few years, you begin to wonder, you know, what is the legacy I leave? What do I want? What's my point? Why am I, you know, recounting all of these awful memories and reliving them and telling them again? And so for me, I felt like there had to be a bigger story. I hope that, um, you know, other immigrants, other people of color will read it and feel less alone. One of the reasons we feel so silenced and marginalized is because we don't hear stories like our own in the mainstream, and it's not a mainstream narrative. Hi listeners, this is your host Sadia Khan. You are listening to season 12 of Immigrantly. We are back for another insightful episode of the podcast. You know how people say things happen for a reason? I am nowhere near that idealistic, but my conversation with Anna Q was certainly timely. In August, I returned to Pakistan for the first time in two years. The journey back to one's homeland is always a bundle of anticipation and anxiety. And you can imagine this period of political instability and the pandemic only added to the stress. I am so glad though I took the trip. Seeing my parents, my cousins and walking through my dad's farm, I was reminded of the exceptional forces of family that connect us all in this braid of history, memory, and present commitment. Anna Q, our guest today, is a Chinese-American writer caught in this very fabric. She writes to make sense of cultural diasporas and the immigrant experience, including her own. She grew up in New York, earned her MFA in creative nonfiction from Sarah Lawrence College, and currently resides in Brooklyn. Her work, which has appeared in publications like Poets and Writers and Jezebel, recasts the narratives ascribed to immigrants with candor and grit. Hughes Made in China, a memoir of love and labor, made its debut this past August month. During our conversation, we talked about important and personal things. We asked questions like, What does intergenerational trauma look like? 
and how is the experience different for girls and women talking about these difficult topics enriches our understanding of others and more formatively ourselves so let's get started I am so 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 excited to oh, have you here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And I have a feeling that this is going to be a great conversation, but we yeah. have to check ourselves on time. I know, I know. So I want to start off with your background, mm-hmm. seeing that your background has shaped both you and your work. Tell us where your story as an immigrant began and what was it like growing up in Queens, New York? Yeah, so um I was born in Wenzhou, China. My first language actually wasn't Mandarin. It was a small dialect. It's called Wenzhouese. And when I was 1, my father unfortunately had an accident um and ended up passing away. And my mother, we were, you know, we grew up pretty poor and um my family's been poor for generations and so given the fact that she had already been married as i'm sure you are well aware mm-hmm. um one child policy was still in place they had me so her options were really um limited um so she decided to immigrate to the united states she left me in china for um 5 years with my grandparents she came back for me after she married the owner of a sweatshop that she was mm-hmm. working in had two kids and then she came back for me and she actually she bought my stepfather with her and um and in just you know a couple of days i was in queens but it was a crazy experience you know um when i arrived in my new home i had a half brother and half sister and we were treated very very differently but then on top of that i was the oldest and um i was entering the public school system before mm-hmm. either of them and you know my stepfather spoke some english but given that he wasn't my real father just his obligations were you know my mom often told me i had to be aware that i wasn't annoying him staying out of his way and um you know he was my benefactor Hmm. Um so that's how I grew up in Queens and it was a very siloed life I would say there was you know a couple of more other Asian kids while growing up there was one Chinese girl and she's actually my friend now still but she um you know she's the kind of first generation that doesn't speak Chinese and yeah. talks back to her mom in English and so even though I had her you know she didn't even speak my language so it was like it was hopeless me trying to cling on to this chinese girl that didn't speak my language anyways so it was it was really tough so i had to learn mandarin cuz my stepfather is taiwanese so that was the first thing that i did when i came and then um they put me in school i should have gone to second grade cuz i was uh 7 mm. but um they ended up putting me in first just because i had I I didn't speak a word of English. Mm. Um and that assimilation was really really hard. Mm. Uh, I would say. And you know, I think what stuck with me the most is just there's a there's a huge class divide in my family as well because mm. of the fact that my step family is my, you know, benefactors. Right. And so, you know, th- everything from clothes to food was rationed. 
and very specific in terms of like how much money I was spending of theirs. And, um, and it was tough because they were incredibly generous with my half siblings. And so I just didn't really, you know, as a child who had been ripped out of China away from the two people that you know, raised her until she was seven. I didn't understand why my mother treated us differently. I didn't understand why this stepfather was my father but wasn't my father. And there were just a lot of things that happened that was also around language itself um, in the sense that, you know, all of these sort of demands and rules were being told to me in Winzonese. And my stepfather didn't speak Winzonese, neither did my half-siblings. So my mother and I always had our secret language. And that secret language was always reprimanding me in some way. I just noticed your tattoo and I'm <laughs> loving it. Thank you. I'm. It says made in China, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I'm assuming it has more than one meaning to you, Yeah. Right? It's got a bunch of meanings. Um, I think... One of the things that assimilation has done, I don't want to say to me, but um, in an effort to assimilate at a pretty young age, most people don't know that I'm an immigrant. Most people don't know that I'm Chinese. Um, And um, it's such a huge part of who I am and the way I think, the food I eat, the, you know, my inner morals. Um, So... I was also being cheeky a little bit. Um, (laughs) um, And then, you know, I think about factories and I think about where products are made and I think about that connection as well. Um, It's very complicated. Yeah. It's very complicated. Do you believe in assimilation, though? Because I've come to realize that as an immigrant, I want to just hold on to my identity and integrate Mm -hmm. and not lose all of me, yeah. just part of me. Yeah. Uh, does that matter? Is it important to you? That is really important to me. And I think that's what's really exciting about our generation, right? Because we're we're lucky enough to be like, I want to preserve. Hmm. I want to hand these things down because so little was handed down to me and so little consideration hmm. was given to holding on to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a privilege In your case, I feel like what was handed down to you, and correct me if I'm wrong, was mostly trauma, Mm -hmm. right, and pain, Mm -hmm. which a lot of immigrant parents go through. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they don't talk about it with Mm -hmm. their kids. I have started talking about it with my kids. It's important Mm -hmm. to talk about that so that there is some sort of reconciliation Mm -hmm. right rather than just dumping it on our Mm -hmm. kids Mm -hmm. and expecting them to deal with it Mm -hmm. without giving them the proper context Mm -hmm. of why I am angry or why I am emotional Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something that didn't happen to you yeah I think that's a cultural thing that we have to change Mm -hmm. right Um, in the Chinese culture specifically um, there's been so much war famine starvation tyranny um (laughs) so there's just been a lot of trauma and so you know we have a lot of generations of children raising children yeah I met my my grandmother again in my 30s and I just can't tell you how fortunate I feel for for having that experience because I get to see the kind of person she is and how she raised my mother and then me and so you know 
There is my my grandmother can be very manipulative too. <laughs> She's a matriarch yeah. and you know and she didn't want to let go of that power and my mother has that power now. But it's extensive. We're talking about right. a big family and Unfortunately for my family, it's stability, right? Because we don't have enough of that. So they will, they all look to my mother for it. Anna, I'm reading your memoir. It is so evocative and I connect to it in some twisted ways, yes. right? Yeah. Because I'm an immigrant. I'm mm-hmm. first generation immigrant. I have very strong familial ties. Mm-hmm. I recently was in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. So I understand and appreciate the value of family, yeah. especially in societies like ours, right? Mm-hmm. Eastern cultures, there's yeah. a lot of emphasis on family unit. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading your book, I couldn't imagine the pain and the trauma mm-hmm. that you must have gone through because you were almost trying to break away from mm-hmm. that cycle of abuse that you faced at the hands of your mother. Mm-hmm. And the way you've described your mother is in generous terms. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. But I wish I could understand her character more because I'm sure there is some logic, some twisted mm-hmm. nuance mm-hmm. to why she acted the way she did. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk about intergenerational trauma, right? Yeah. Now, for you, it was primarily because of the alienation and abuse you felt at your parents' hands, mm-hmm. especially your mother, not yeah. your stepfather. But we see that playing out in diaspora families, right? Mm-hmm. We see kids who are exposed to weathers of adulthood earlier on in life because they have to speak, like they have to translate for their parents mm-hmm. or they are working at restaurants in lieu of playing with their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it seems like this trauma is compounded due to silence, Mm-hmm. Right. There is this silence, unspoken, unacknowledged pain and trauma that both parents and children feel. How does silence, in your opinion, contribute to that trauma? And what can we do for ourselves with our family to break away from this cyclical silence? And you've done that through your book. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's actually a great question. And it is so, so difficult, especially coming from a society where, as you mentioned, we have such close units of family and society is based on that family. And then on top of that, there's the gender roles. I think you probably understand that more than, you know, (laughs) non-Asian people. But just, um, you know, I think a huge part of what is unsaid and what is silent was the gender. You know, at one point, um, my mother said um, she wouldn't have been able to bring me to the United States if I was a boy. And I just Mm. didn't understand that. Mm. Um, And But then on the other side, you know, she... She was very careful about um, me being a female and my stepfather being a male. Yeah. And that, I think, is something that is rooted in our culture, but um, isn't talked about enough. 
And I think that actually had a huge impact on the way my mother acted and the way she was trying to control me in a way. And, you know, there's so much that didn't make it into the book. Um, Moments of silencing. And I think, thank you for saying that, you know, I've sort of made it to the other side. But ultimately, I also do think about my relationship with my family you know it's not a good relationship so I don't know if you can say Mm. um that I've succeeded right I've succeeded in getting out Mm. but I've lost so much um because I've always wanted a family and I've always wanted to change the dynamic of my family but it was absolutely beyond my control and I think that is something that you have to recognize And I think once you're able to recognize that it isn't you, but the culture, then you can at least stop blaming yourself for Mm. everything and stop reacting to everything. Because right now, you know, I still love, obviously, I still love my mother, but I haven't seen her for eight or nine years. And I don't know how to bridge that gap Mm. because I don't know if I trust her to be in my life, to not be controlling, to not hurt me the way she's always hurt me. Um, So I think, you know, when we talk about that, it's it's really hard to know what to do because ultimately you're looking at, are you willing to sacrifice your relationship with your family? Mm. And most people, even if they are willing, cannot because of their socioeconomic situations. And... You know, I think a lot about what would have happened if my family left me in China instead of bringing me here. And actually in 2018, I went back and I visited and I was just so shocked. I think there's something about, you know, hearing and understanding that transgenerational trauma and living it uh, through your parents. But then actually going back to the place where that trauma happened for them you begin to realize what there is Hmm. and you begin to realize how little options they had. And sure, I would have been obviously a different um, mother than she was, but, you know, I've had a lot of the privileges she hasn't had. Hmm. I went to college. I went to grad school. I've been financially independent in the way that uh, she was never able to. And so that, I think, also was something over her, right? So her fear, so much of her fear comes from her fear that my father, my stepfather will leave her and that I will implode this wonderful marriage that she's, she's worked so hard for and accomplished. You know, Anna, you talk about so many things Mm -hmm. that I want to unpack. One, the dynamic between you and your stepdad and how your mom views it. I think Mm -hmm. it goes back to how in at least Eastern cultures, Mm -hmm. the culture that I come from, we view blood relations versus Mm -hmm. relations that are not blood relations Mm -hmm. and how important they are. Um, The second thing that you talk about is how your mother thought that if you were a boy, she couldn't bring you to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that would have happened? Why do you think if you were a boy, you wouldn't be able to come to the U.S. or at least she wouldn't be Mm -hmm. able to bring you to the U.S.? Yeah, I was really surprised by that comment. and I didn't really understand it, but I think I asked her why. And she said, because I would be carrying another man's name into their house. 
it's so funny because even in the language, the way that women are married to men is different from the way that men are married yeah. to women, right? So women are given, and once girls are born, we're not really of that family. Almost immediately, yeah. we're assumed to be of the other family. So I think part of it is that, right? Um, if I was a boy, then I would be bringing someone into my stepfather's family. You know, I was also thinking along the lines of how in our societies and cultures, most of the time, not now, but in the past and even now to some extent, boys or men are the breadwinners, mm -hmm. right? Always. So mm -hmm. it's like, oh, you know, your grandparents would probably have wanted to hold on to a boy because mm -hmm. he could provide for them later in life mm. um, versus... A girl who, in most instances, is considered a burden. Mm -hmm. Do you have you ever thought along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I've always been treated like a burden, so yeah. <laughs> not that much. Um, you know, I think, I think my mom wouldn't have bought me over if I was a boy, and I think if I was a boy, actually, we wouldn't be having this conversation because, you know, my actual father's family yeah. should have taken more responsibility yeah. than they did. Yeah. Um, and I think if I was a boy, they would have. They would have. That's so interesting. But I'm not surprised mm -hmm. because I can yeah. understand the dynamics. Now, you mentioned you went back to China in 2018. Mm -hmm. Was there anything you discovered about your mom or her upbringing or her circumstances that explain in a very warped way what she did to you and why she did what she did to you? There were so many things that just, I felt like I was being punched left and right when I was there, actually. There was just, my mom is not a talker. She refuses to talk about the past. Like, I just found out so many new things that I had no idea about. Mm. And I didn't even know how to begin processing it while there. And, you know, I think what really struck me was um, that my father's family really didn't help my mother and I. And um, I think that enraged her. And I think it enraged her in a way that was, my mother's an incredibly ambitious woman. Mm. And I think when we think about ambition, we forget what's under that ambition. And it's usually, you know, some sort of injustice has been done. Mm. And I think for her, she wanted to show them that she could survive without them and that she could do well. And she has. And I know it's a lot more complicated than that because transgenerational trauma is not so simple. I think, um, not to give the book away, but like I got to meet my grandmother in my 30s. Like you left them when you were seven mm -hmm. and then you meet them in your 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. A huge catalyst for the book was when my grandfather passed away and my mother didn't tell me. And she went to the funeral like in China, came back and then eventually told me. And that really upset me because it was just such a denial of my own rights mm. as um, as a human being, as their grandchild, as her. And, you know, her reasoning was like, why would you go? Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that was her reasoning. And um, it just made me realize how different we were and how I was just never going to get to a place with her where I could be myself.
You know, I want to pivot a little and mm-hmm. talk about your memoir. As I said, I'm reading it. It's such an eye opener. Although there is so much that I can still understand, mm-hmm. having grown up in a South Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Even then, I mean, there are moments where I'm like, "What, really?" Because I have such strong relationship with my family, right? Mm-hmm. I rely on them emotionally. Mm-hmm extensively in mm-hmm. fact and it's difficult and painful to read your story and be like okay for you the idea of family has changed so much because mm-hmm. of what you um experienced mm-hmm. what compelled you to a write it and do you think it was more reflective or did it help you heal was it part of the healing process you know i think for you to be a published writer you're not writing for catharsis hmm. um and so i think when i started writing it was definitely to hear my own voice um i had been silenced for so long that i just wanted to be able to retell the events as they were and i felt that i could never do that and that felt even more true after i got the document from child services because hmm. it basically told me that there was no quote unquote unfounded abuse. And oh. what that told me was, you know, my childhood was as it should be, and that just felt like an additional erasure. And also in hindsight, right? Even as a 30-something-year-old woman looking back at my 15, 16-year-old self, that was one of the bravest things absolutely um I could have imagined. and it just hurt me so much that i did that mm-hmm. and the result was that someone had you know come and come to the house interviewed saw me and said everything is fine and so that was my initial response just the pain and the the feeling of being erased and silenced once again um but then you know as time passed i began to think about all of the other people like me that need help and that you know are being abused and yet the system finds that there is no abuse and that it's unfounded hmm. maybe at some point when i started writing it was to feel like i could um i would have a place and the space to tell my story um but once that happened i felt like i needed to the more important thing was the bigger story in the book and taking a look at our society and how we shape both our families and our society it was a really really long process um i think you know when you spend about a decade on a book after a few years you begin to wonder you know what is the legacy i leave right um what do i want what's my point why am i you know recounting all of these awful memories and reliving them and telling them again And so for me I felt like there had to be a bigger story. Yeah. And I hope that um you know other immigrants, other people of color will read it and feel less alone. Mm. Um I think we are often one of the reasons we feel so silenced and um marginalized is because we don't hear stories like our own in the mainstream and it's not a mainstream narrative. That's true. So I think, you know, that's sort of the work that I want to do. Talking about the story, in what ways do you think writing is also a statement on issues in 
culture and politics? Yeah, I think the personal is the political. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, I don't know if this is the same for um, for the culture that you come from, but um, because China was a communist country, we were taught very much to kind of keep our heads down and um, try not to get killed. Um, so there isn't this streak of resistance that is innate. Um, I think that is changing for my generation, the future generations, yeah. thank God. But I think, you know, admitting that the personal is political is is work that as Asian Americans, we have to do. That's true. Anna, what is family to you now? Um, Family to me is, <laughs> it's mostly my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I'm very lucky. I um, am recently engaged. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, so I think actually that has had a huge impact on me. You talk about how like you lean on your family for mm-hmm. everything. I think one of the reasons it's taken me this long to write this book is because I've never had that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I met my um, partner now that I, you know, I think back on it and I see it in hindsight. And, you know, you do need to be grounded. You do need some sort of stability in your life. And, and it just took me this long to be stable. And the book came out, you know, I think I would have liked to be younger, of course, when, uh, when the book came out. Why do you think you would want to be younger? I don't know. I feel like 10 years is a long time to spend on a book. No, but you've done such a brilliant job, Thank right? Thank you. And yeah. you talk about how you've, it took you, I don't know how many times to rewrite your introduction, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And I think relatability is something to also look at. Um, I teach now, but I'm constantly thinking about the way we teach um, just people of color Hmm. Um, because MFA programs, especially writing, is very white, very male-centric. And so, yeah, I think that's really important to think about. In terms of writing, that's another context of parental and cultural expectations that mm-hmm. people in immigrant communities have, right? Yeah. You want your kids to excel in sciences. And for some, it may be problematic. But being first-generation immigrant, I can understand why immigrants want their kids to excel in those particular disciplines. Mm-hmm. Um, but was that a problem? How did you decide to choose this craft despite... I'm assuming uh, resistance from family. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't so much resistance from family, more more so as, you know, growing up, I think, um, again, you know, I was the first kid in my family to go to school. Mm -hmm. So, like, also you have to think about, you know, our immigrant parents, what Mm -hmm. they think is a job that is stable and yeah. pays well, right? So those are the jobs that they're going to be promoting. Yeah. Um, and they promote it very, very strongly. Um, but one thing about immigrant parents that, you know, as I was writing this book, I began to think about is that when you take immigrant parents out of their native country, they are no longer a part of the parents. They're not no longer connected to the community of parenting that happens in their former culture. And then when they come here, they're, you know, it takes them a long time. It takes them a long time to integrate into. So um, 
you know, they're sort of, you, many of us are, are raised in a weird silo of parenting, right? Because our parents are trying their best, but all they have to work with is sort of um, this memory of what it means to be a parent and how to be a good parent. And I think that is really important to think about, too, um, when we think about um, how our parents pressure us and where it comes from and why, right? Like, I think we need to question our parents' education, where they come from, how they were raised, and why they think the way they think, and whether that's right for us now. Yeah, I love it because you present so much nuance mm. into how you view your parents' experiences, right? Mm -hmm. I am that parent mm -hmm. who is navigating two cultures, who wants their kids to excel in certain mm -hmm. disciplines because mm -hmm. I think we don't have the kind of support system that I probably could give them back in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. That's what I like about your book as well, nuance that you mm -hmm. add, yeah. which only people who've had these lived experiences can add, right? Mm -hmm. You're generous with your description and mm -hmm. your analysis of what is and what can be. Anna, what do you hope the kind of impact your book would make on communities in general and your community in particular? Yeah, that's a that's something I, I'm sort of facing but not really facing because of the language barrier. For example, a lot of people ask me if my mother's read my book and, um, you know, I like to be ignorant and be like, oh, she doesn't read English books. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I think when it comes to the community, it's a little bit harder to say. I think... I think one of the reasons I felt so silenced was also to be living in New York um, in the 90s, in the aughts, and, um, you know, growing up with a narrative that felt very dated. Um, sweatshops still in Queens. And, you know, it's not just one sweatshop. There are many, many mm. sweatshops. And that the culture of these families are, they feel so backwards and yet... They're all living amongst us. And that's another reason that why I felt silence. The pressure of the silence isn't just from my family. It's from the community as well, right? right. The community of my public school, um, of like me telling my teacher at a really young age that um, no one can help me with homework. And it's like they don't understand why that is. Mm. And is this your white school teachers? Mm. Yeah, mm. I pretty much only had white school teachers. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I think about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, when was, uh, oh. yeah. So, um, and that was, you know, and so I felt like I had to protect my parents in a weird way too uh. because they didn't understand the culture and they were working really hard. So I would say like, you know, my parents work till late, they can't come. And, you know, at PTA meetings, my teachers would be like, well, we have late hours, we're open till eight. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, it's not late enough. I mean, my parents couldn't go. And but then on the other hand, you know, I don't know how much they really cared to make it. Mm -hmm. So it's it's hard because like, you know, I try to be really clear about that, you know, what's sort of their fault and mm -hmm. what they should own and and what is, you know, pressures of society, I would say, you know, like my family comes also from a lineage of, I don't know if you know, I'm sure this is similar to your culture, but like Chinese culture, there used to be multiple wives. 
And so mm. the idea of multiple wives, you know, their kids being favored in what way and mm. why mm-hmm. because of their status yeah. is sort of what we're looking at in terms of why That's for so my mother, if you think about yeah. it. Yeah, because, again, you have to think about she was previously married. She didn't think she was going to have another chance to get married. Mm-hmm. She married up. Um, and there were all of these rules and right ways to, to do things that she mm-hmm. didn't understand and um, didn't know how to navigate. And so, so much of it was from fear. And she just wanted to be perfect. Unfortunately, at your expense. Yeah, absolutely at my expense. Yeah. And I think that is the cost of immigration for her. Absolutely. Anna, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. uh, where can people find your book? Because I really want people to read this yeah, book. Yeah, <laughs> you can find it pretty much anywhere, any bookstore. If you're ordering it online, you can order at Bookshop. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's available on Amazon. It's available anywhere books are sold. Wonderful. And in the end, if you were to describe America mm-hmm. in a word or a sentence, how would you do that? Ooh, in a sentence. I think we're in the midst of change. Hmm. And there's a lot not going right, <laughs> yeah, not going well, but there's also a lot of hope and there's a lot that's happening under the surface. Absolutely. I love it. Thank you so much, Anna. This was <laughs> so good. And thank you for coming. Thank on you Emerson so Key. much for having me. Wow. What an incredible conversation. So here's what I want you to do. If you are an immigrant, a child of immigrants, or anybody who can relate to immigrant experience, try breaking that awkward silence. Have that conversation, that long overdue conversation, and let us know how it went. Until next time, take care.